0: Easing. Thank you, Alejandro. Easing into some time together to talk about the Dharma. Uh, I appreciate your being here, Young Urban Zen,
1: Tuesday, August 3rd. My name is Kodo, uh, and I'm with you from a little spot of land between what we know now as lower hate. And Hayes Valley in San Francisco the city center. San Francisco is in um, Yeah, it's quite a joy to be with you.
0: Uh, and to and to get to share some
1: some space and relative stillness. I've been feeling a little bit like uh, something I read recently. These um, scientists have discovered that caffeinating honeybees helps them. Pollinate more flowers and make more honey. I've been feeling a little bit like a caffeinated honeybee running from thing to thing. But this isn't honeybee dharma. Today we're going to talk about the classics. Uh, This is the first and what I'm uh, hoping will be an intermittent series on what I want to call the foundations of dharma for young urban Zen. So this is number one, and we're going to begin at the beginning.
0: Um, The
1: beginning, as I'm going to call it, is uh, with the Four Noble Truths, and for tonight, Joy and the First Noble Truth. So uh, the perspective I want to talk about tonight is uh, throughout the path of practice, certainly there is this noble truth of suffering, and there's also just so much joy. And throughout the whole thing, compassion can sustain us. So many, many paths of Buddhist practice,
0: as you're well aware,
1: and um, the teachings so often begin with this first noble truth: dukkha, suffering, stress. And so, why is it emphasized so much? What's what is what are we doing here? What is that? And um, what do we need to know about it? So I'll start, with the, I'll start with the why, and then we'll go to the what. To get a sense of why it's emphasized so often, uh, I want you to imagine that uh, you've decided to consult a doctor. You have some sort of uh, uh, leg injury, let's say. You've had a limp going on for a little while. It's not getting any better. You're in pain, and you've decided to go to the doctor. So you book an appointment. Click, click, confirmed. go to the doctor's office. Through the glass door, you're up the stairs. And after a little bit of a wait, you walk, you start to walk into the examination room. The doctor's already inside. And before you can close the door, the doctor uh, barks the prescription for you, penicillin, and sends you off to the pharmacy without examining you, without asking you any questions, without even knowing your name. The obvious point here is that how effective is that medicine going to be for your, for your ailment? Uh, the, remedy, the remedy isn't close to the ailment. You have to, you have to know and understand the ailment uh, in order to select and apply the remedy. So what is it we need to understand about dukkha? Uh, Dukkha is this Pali word uh, which is usually translated as suffering and one of the most quoted teachings on suffering, the Buddha saying, in the past monks and also now I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. In the past and also now I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. This word dukkha, this ancient Pali word that's rendered here as suffering, appears in its variations in the early texts almost 3,000 times. Just to give you a sense of, of how predominant this teaching is.
0: Now, something to know
1: about it is that um, dukkha, while a single word, and when we say suffering, kind of has, has a A little bit of a touch of being singular, it points to a whole spectrum of experiences of suffering and stress all the way from mild psychological discomfort, mild physical discomfort up to something like
0: something like burning swirls of ill
1: will or the grief at the loss of a loved one. So all, all the way from these these very uh, maybe subtle experiences of stress all the way up to our greatest losses. Something else important to know about uh, dukkha at the outset is that the dharma doesn't address a suffering in the abstract. It doesn't address a dukkha in the abstract, but rather the, dharmas, the dharma is applied to specific stresses for specific people namely me and you and all of us
0: and in that way i think we can we can
1: think about dukkha as a as a the teachings on dukkha as the sort of pointer to our own experience with the question what is it here that needs addressing
0: where is the suffering here for me
1: so it comes up almost 3000 times in the early teachings and in some of those places the final the final goal of the whole path of buddhist practice is expressed as to fully understand dukkha the full understanding of dukkha and that in turn liberates so while A full understanding of dukkha is synonymous with the ending of the path. What's central for us, I think, is the gradual development, both of our understanding of dukkha and our practice with suffering.
0: So here comes a useful distinction. In the teachings and for us, having been born, all 15 of us,
1: Having been born, there are certain things that are guaranteed. We are guaranteed the form of dukkha that we will
0: age, that we will become ill,
1: and uh, soon enough that our lives will end. Also, it's highly dependable that we will experience physical pain. There are these sorts of, what I'm gonna call for shorthand, guaranteed, dukkha, guaranteed sources of dukkha in this life. And then we have this other set of stresses and sufferings or this other category that um, I'm gonna go ahead and call not guaranteed. Shorthand, we might call it optional, but really I think something to focus on here is that these are stresses from which we can be freed in this lifetime. That's encouraging. That's, uh, that just saying it brings some shot of joy into my body. So these sorts of suffering from which we can be freed in this lifetime, they have a lot to do with our relationship to experience. How do we relate to experience? These are things like layers of mental suffering that we pile on to physical suffering. These are things like um a sort of agitation or repulsion or dejection we might feel when we experience loss or disgrace or blame or pain. And then maybe really close to the core, uh, the the sort of the sort of difficulty, stress, and suffering that we feel when our um, sense of self is threatened or found to be shaky. So all of these represent a sort of, um, a sort of suffering from which
0: we can be freed in this lifetime.
1: Generally speaking, the more complete understanding of Dukkha we have, the less of this optional suffering comes to be. Another way to look at this, uh, this set of uh, what I'm calling, de- maybe let's call them dependable suffering and optional suffering, is the teaching of the second arrow. Buddha teaches this this one. We have the, uh, say someone is struck with a dart. They feel some level of suffering. If they're struck with a second dart, does it get worse? It does. The first dart is the guaranteed suffering, and the second dart, along with the third, sometimes the fourth, sometimes the fifth, sixth, seventh, is all the stuff we pile on all the sense of self that we make out of the original suffering, all the resisting we do to it, or all the um, uh, uh, craving for something else.
0: So as we study this, as we study the ways that we add on to the forms of dukkha that are basic to this life.
1: As we study how we add, we come to understand the processes, the conditions by which dukkha is put into place and held in place and strengthened. The really good news is that because dukkha is dependent upon conditions, it's not stable. It arises, it passes away. And when we, do our part to remove supporting conditions, remove the conditions that support dukkha, it can cease right there. We'll get into more detail with this when we talk about the other noble truths. Generally speaking, this is the trajectory of our practice.
0: I think one of the most beautiful promises of the practice is that um, even these forms of guaranteed dukkha that we will age we will be come ill at some point we will die with a
1: fully fully developed understanding of dukkha even these even these can be done exquisitely in a certain kind of way we won't we don't even these sufferings we don't have to
0: suffer It's one of the inspiring possibilities of the practice.
1: It sounds nice, doesn't it? But I think it's a little simple. (laughs) It's a little simple. Um, One of the things I was hoping to highlight tonight is that uh, there's a way of talking about dukkha where we can kind of zoom in on the the, the particulars of experience and parse it apart and almost like separate dukkha out from our lives, separate suffering out from our, our lives and like tinker with it. But I think there's something really interesting in zooming out far enough to see that in, in, in my estimation, most any scenario in our lives, we experience a mixture of
0: both dukkha, suffering,
1: and pleasure. Like take any any given any given scenario in your life, your work, your work life, personal relationship, um, family, state of your body. There's pain and there's pleasure. I, and I find that combination satisfying. Uh, like something really interesting about that. It feels fertile. So alongside alongside with with Duca joy is very well represented in both the teachings and in the practices. Uh, In Nishijima Roshi's translation of Dōgen Shōbōgenzo, the word joy appears over 150 times. But maybe even more than that, and in the rest of the Zen literature, you find that joy is represented through image and metaphor more than even explicit naming. There's this one. Dogen saying in continuous practice, quote, there is no scarcity of beautiful scenery. The flowers know how to laugh and the birds know how to sing. Now, this is someone who has been intimate with the teaching since he was a boy and intimate with suffering since he was a boy and lived a full life of practice and saying, there's no scarcity of beautiful scenery. Here with pleasures, just as with dukkha, joy, gladness, happiness, this whole host of of, uh, nourishing positive qualities that support the practice. It's also a distinction to be made in in pleasures. Pleasures that um, tie us up, move us further into suffering, and those pleasures that move us toward freedom and liberation. I think this is one of, one of the areas of uh, discernment to develop for ourselves that's most useful along the path, and actually that um, each of us has to develop for ourselves in our own context. So those, those pleasures and joys that lead us further into craving, clinging, and suffering, and those that lead more toward liberation, so there's a, a teaching about the first type, these pleasures that sort of move us, move us toward intensifying the optional suffering. Um, the teaching for them is called the Five Chords of Sensual Pleasure. And you can get a feel for these if you, if you think about if you think about um, your body being tied, say, by five different ropes. I've got, say I have, a, I have a loop around one arm, another about around the other arm, one around one leg, one around the other leg, and then one around my torso. And I've got five different people pulling in different directions at different times. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of being jerked around by these five ropes, right?
0: No stability here. I'm certainly
1: not in control. There's no degree of freedom. Five cords of sensual pleasure. These five ropes are likened to the first chord, experiences experienced by the eye. Sights that we see that are pleasant, nothing too wrong yet. Agreeable, nothing wrong yet. We like them, nothing wrong yet. And something in our relationship to them generates craving generates more craving. We reinforce the machinery of craving, clinging, suffering, based on what we come into contact with at the eye. It's one chord. Second chord, what we come into contact with at the ear. Pleasant, agreeable, likable, and generates craving. Something in our relationship generates craving. Same with the nose being the third chord, the tongue and tastes being fourth, and tangible sense of the body being the
0: fifth. I found it puzzling for a really long time that the, the um, this idea that that the
1: senses, the objects of the senses can be so closely connected with suffering i um I didn't like that idea, actually, uh, simply because how else do I live my life? You know I, I need my eyes and ears and nose. And, um, and then what became really puzzling for me was t- was was learning about learning about these in the teachings, people like the Buddha or these mature practitioners, they still have senses. They still walk around in the world and actually still talk about experiencing pleasant sensation because of because of things they see at the eye the difference what's the what's the difference still have a pleasant experience something in the relationship to experience doesn't kick over into feeding the habit
0: of craving and clinging something
1: something in that and it's something that has to be studied in, in one's own experience, what it, what's, the, what's the movement? Can you feel the movement from seeing the sight to craving arising? And just get really intimate with that over and over. Um, one of my teachers says, if you wanna be free, study where you get stuck. In this case, if you wanna be free, study where, study where craving arises. That's what gets the wheel of dukkha rolling. So these five chords of sensual pleasure, that's um, that's one way of thinking about pleasures on the one side that actually reinforce dukkha. And then on the other side, we have these pleasures and joys that move us in the direction of liberation. Um,
0: Maybe you'll believe me, and probably you know this for yourself,
1: Though I I I don't always I don't always act in accord with this right before bedtime, but these sorts of pleasures are even better than chocolate. <laughs> I will still have my dark chocolate before I go to sleep. Um, but the the pleasures associated with freedom
0: um, register on a deeply satisfying level
1: and actually help us orient and practice. Um, good news is they're available and part of the path through, through the, the whole training. If you look at the three trainings, um, ethics and virtue, uh, meditation, samadhi, and then wisdom, you have a, you have a form of skillful, beneficial, wholesome, very satisfying pleasure associated with each of the three. In the realm of in the realm of sila, in the realm of virtue, you have what's called the bliss of blamelessness. And the bliss of blamelessness is associated with that really light feeling, you know, when you're confident you haven't done something to harm anyone. It's like for today, Do you reflect on your day. Um, I didn't, I didn't physically harm anyone. I didn't take anything that wasn't given. Um, I didn't lie to anyone. I didn't put anyone down. You know, that sort of, that sort of, yeah, I
0: almost have to talk about
1: it in the negative. Blamelessness, because there's nothing, there's nothing sticky in your conduct for for the day or the hour. In the realm of samadhi, meditation, One of the most distinct pleasures is when mindfulness starts to kick on and recognition becomes very clear. Where the, you you notice this in your own sitting where the mind moves from um, a measure of distracted and cloudy to even just two clicks in the direction of clear and more stable. And then there's a whole spectrum of, of pleasures associated with the building of concentration, the building of uh, steadiness and ease. They're both physical and mental. So pleasures of samadhi that move us along the path. Very closely associated with these pleasures of letting go, pleasures of the arising of wisdom. Um, Of course, it's deeply satisfying when when an insight arises one of the satisfactions that you can investigate that you, that's associated with wisdom you can you can take a two-minute coffee break anytime
0: and check out in my mind right now
1: is greed operative or is it absent and if it's absent just taking a moment to appreciate its absence that you're not being tugged around by greed at the moment same with ill will
0: not being tugged around by, oh, will at the moment, and not being tugged around by delusion. Could be a, a very satisfying two-minute two minute break. So we've got these sorts of
1: pleasures uh, that we can, we can definitely take to be joys, but in the long haul, kind of roll us up into suffering. And these sorts of pleasures and joys that move us in the direction of freedom.
0: So, from the books of book of Serenity, there's this. There's this image I feel like holds.
1: Uh, can hold both the suffering in our practice and. joy and beauty in our practice? Very simple. It goes in front of the cliff of dead trees.
0: Flowers and plants are always in spring. In front of the cliff of dead trees, flowers and plants are always in spring. In the last few minutes, just bringing this a little closer to home, I'm thinking about thinking about
1: how suffering and stress and joy mix in our practice. Those scenarios we, we're in, in which we, we hold them
0: both. I suspect some come, can come to
1: mind for you. Um, I feel a really strong affinity with the Buddha, having read a lot of the literature for a long while. So I kind of feel like he, he's got a place in my heart somewhere, or that like check in. Oh, how are you doing, Shakyamuni? And I can kind of feel him in there. And there's this, there's a phase of the Buddha's life that I feel I feel like maybe maybe is um, underrepresented or maybe not talked about enough, and that's the period before he becomes the Buddha. The period after he started his started his practice, um, but he hasn't he hasn't reached a state that any of us would call perfected. You know, he's living in the world of bodhisattva. Bodhisatta. This is the origin of the, the Bodhisattva path. But there are some really poignant moments. And one of them that struck me this this week was, or while I was thinking about this, um, it's at this point where where Gautama, the Buddha to be, has he's developed, he's developed his practice to a um, a certain point he's, he's living a virtuous life he's developed concentration he goes to the community of a teacher alara kalama and uh, says i i want to i want to study the teachings i want to study the dharma and i want to uh i want to take up the discipline of your community and be trained in this way takes it up and it doesn't take long owing to the the buddhist practice and his uh, sort of mature qualities that he um, he arrives at the same um, understanding as his teacher, Alara Kalama. He's both mastered the teachings and he's experienced what the teacher has experienced. In that way, the teacher the teacher affirms, "You are now like I am, and I am now like you are." I will, and and says to the Buddha to be. I want you to stay here and teach, teach, help me teach in the community. I want you to take up the seat with me. And can, can you imagine the poignancy in the Buddha, the, what I imagine, the Buddha to be realizing he's come to know what his teacher knows, he's experienced what his teacher has experienced, and it has not brought suffering to an end. The vow that the Buddha took up to end suffering the reason he set out can you imagine that that moment and it it even says in the in the text it says disappointed he left
0: and I, i that really that that's something human to me bodhisattva buddha to be he's both experiencing these joys of practice and Still, the human pains
1: of disappointment. Anyway, I think it's a it's a really fruitful time, interesting time in the Buddha's life because it presents such a a, a complex, like, real human. Um, yeah. So not only does not only does this combination, joy and dukkha sort of bring forth a bit of poignancy for me, but also um, sort of brings me to the the last place I want to I want to mention tonight. And that is compassion. The as I want to talk about it, the simple practice of compassion is what can sustain us in this path that, for, for a, uh, possibly a long time into our future, we're going to be practicing both with dukkha, suffering, stress, and with joys. And the beauty that that brings together. And regardless, if the times are good, there's compassion. The practice of compassion can sustain us. Regardless if the times are
0: bad, the practice of compassion can sustain us.
1: Two very simple ingredients for compassion practice. Number one is the sensitivity to suffering. Sensitivity to dukkha. Recognizing that suffering is either happening over here or it's happening
0: over there. Sensitivity. And then the second. So simple. The wish, the intention for that suffering to end may you be free from suffering
1: just that little intention the um the the modern studies show that that that's the piece that makes all the difference that little wish that little intention it makes the difference between being burned out and being full uh being totally depleted or being replete when it comes to meeting the suffering of others it's that wish for the relief of suffering. It makes all the difference.
0: So dukkha, some of it we're bound to encounter in this life. Some of it we can we can be completely free of pleasures those that lead us into dukkha, those that lead us to
1: freedom, and then compassion sustaining us all along the way. I feel like this is just a little bit of a thumbnail introduction to the first of the noble truths, dukkha. Um,
0: I think as the, as the
1: sort of foundations of dharma teachings come up in the weeks and months to come, let all of you know as we're moving right along, but we'll head into the second noble truth. The cause or the arising of suffering. The third noble truth, its cessation, and fourth, the path. And then I'm thinking we'll head into the eightfold path after that. So
0: with that, may each of you uh, refine a relationship to experience that is entirely free of optional dukkha i wish that for each of you and may it be so i'd really like to hear your thoughts let's move into some conversation um anything that's